in the last part of chapter 18, as you heard Pastor Curtis read, uh, you have Abraham interceding for the city of Sodom, pleading with God to not wipe out the city. It is conceivable that Abraham interceded in this way because he had great concern for all of the lost in the city of Sodom. But we, we know for sure that he was concerned for one man in particular. Right. He had family there. His nephew, Lot, lived in Sodom with his family. So it's his love for him and it's care for him that compels him to have this dialogue with the Lord looking down on the city where he says, God, will you will you spare? Will you spare the city? So today where we will study God's just and merciful dealing with the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, let me read you a quote. We have here one of the most controversial passages in the entire Bible. Definitely one of the most hated passages in the entire Bible, if not the most hated passage in the entire Bible. Um, we hate and find very offensive, as people in the world, anytime we read of God's judgment of sinners. And the reason God's judgment of sinners is the most offensive thing we could hear is because we're sinners. Okay, so... If we weren't sinners, it wouldn't be offensive because it's that guy. But we know we're sinners. We know we're sinners. And so we find it very offensive when we hear how God chooses to deal with us in his justice and, and in his righteousness. But there is something here for us in Genesis chapter 19. This is not just a, um, a historical account. It is that. But it is here to teach us something. Jonathan Edwards says this, and I think he's right on. This seems to be the chief reason also why Lot was directed to make such haste and not to look behind because his fleeing out of Sodom was designed on purpose to be a type of our fleeing from that state of sin and misery in which we naturally are. So what we see happening here in Sodom is paradigmatic for how God deals with the world. So you have sin. Okay, we're going to talk about sin. We're going to talk about sin through the eyes of God. The sinfulness of sin. And then we see in the city of Sodom that's overrun with sin, like a world that's overrun with sin, we see how God deals with sin. So we learn God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. This isn't Old Testament is not angry God and he got his medication sorted out and now he's nice and friendly. God is who he has always been and who he always will be. So we read about sin in the city of Sodom. And then we see how God deals with sinful people. And he deals with them in two ways, as God deals with all sinful people in two ways. His justice breaks through and his mercy breaks through. So we're going to see his justice rain down on the city of Sodom, and we're going to see his mercy pull out from the city of Sodom. We see both of them here. One more introductory thing before I pray that I want to be careful that we, we guard against, a warning, I suppose, and that is that we don't do what I've heard happen a lot with Genesis 19, and that is to disconnect Jesus from what we're about to read. 
Okay, so everybody, not everybody, almost everybody says, I love Jesus. He's my guy. He's, Jesus is my homeboy. I love what he taught. He's wonderful. But I don't like all that fire and brimstone stuff. Right? So we're going to let the cat out of the bag because some of you are actually thinking, I'm so glad we're not those fire and brimstone Christians. Actually, we are. We are the fire and brimstone Christians. If you read this account carefully, you're going to see that who actually sends the fire and brimstone is the Lord Jesus. He's the one who sends the fire and brimstone. So Jesus and judgment go together. Jesus and fire and brimstone go together. So we cannot disconnect Jesus from this passage. Jesus is the Son of God. Okay? And the Son of God did not just show up on the scene 2,000 years ago. The Son of God has existed and reigned eternally past and eternally future. The Son of God manifested Himself in human form, in the person of Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago. But that wasn't the first time the Son of God showed up, you know, in golden fleece diapers and tiny little omnipotent hands. That's not the first sign of the Son of God in history. Okay, the Son of God has always, always reigned. He humbled Himself for 33 years. He humbled Himself for 33 years. Well, you read in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, as you read the the account of the Son of God descending from His throne. But here's the thing. He's on His throne now. He's on His throne now. And in Luke 17, Jesus says, I'm going to get off my throne and come down again. And if you want to know what it's going to look like when I come down off my throne again, do you know what Jesus says? Read Genesis 19. He says, read Genesis 19. When he comes again, he's not coming again as a poor Jewish carpenter. Let's pray. And we'll read Genesis 19. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. God, if there's ever truth that we're going to resist, here it is. So God, help us not to... Help us not to err in in making your word more palatable or making it say something that it just doesn't say. And help us not to err by distancing ourselves from the text and making us think, ourselves think that this somehow doesn't apply to us. God, help us to, uh, to sit right there in the middle of Sodom. To look around, to see your judgment, to see your mercy. To see sin as it is. To see the punishment that you bring sin as it is. To see the mercy that you offer through Christ as it is. We pray that people would take hold of you today. We pray that people would run and flee from this wicked city. And be saved. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh, please open your Bible. Genesis chapter 19. Verses 20 through 33 of chapter 18 is Abraham talking with the Lord. 
Remember the Lord and two angels came to visit Abraham and, and wanted to have lunch with he and his family. And, and then Abraham talks with the Lord one-on-one. And what we're reading here is what happens while Abraham's talking to the Lord. The other two angels, the other two angels make their way down the hill and make their way into Sodom and Gomorrah. And uh, we're going to read here, they meet Lot. Okay, remember Lot? Lot and Uncle Abraham. Lot is Abraham's nephew. And Lot followed Abraham when Abraham followed God's call. And so they ended up here in the West. God blessed both of them. Both of them became very wealthy, had many possessions. Uh, so much so, in fact, that there came a point where they needed to separate. Abraham said, this isn't going well. We're going to grow resentful and bitter towards one another. We've got too much. We're too close. Our workers are squabbling over the available resources. Who, what, what belongs to who? Who belongs? You know, we, this is just too complicated. So we need to go our separate ways. And then Abraham gives Lot first dibs. He's total humble, totally humble about it. and says, listen, Lot, you, you choose. You want to go east or west? You go west, I go east. You go east, I go west. But you, you take your pick. And Lot makes a very foolish decision. Lot looks down at the, 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 the plains here where the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah are and he sees that it is the land of opportunity. Okay, there are resources abounding. There's a corporate ladder that he can climb. Okay, the jobs are great and on and on and on. Right, he looks and it's wonderful. But what he, what he neglects to pay close attention to is what we learn in chapter 13, verse 13. And that is it was an exceeding wicked city. So physically, it looks good, okay? Practically, it looks good. Pragmatic decision he makes. But he wasn't looking spiritually and wasn't considering the spiritual health of his family. And so what did he do? It says he pitched his tent near Sodom. Well, he knows, he knows it's an evil, wicked city, so I'm not going to, like, move into it. So he, he, gets, he moves into a suburb, right? He just gets near Sodom, probably with great intentions, he moves in and just gets close. But now we're several chapters later and we find, is, is he still near Sodom? No, he's not near Sodom. He's actually in Sodom and he's of Sodom. Verses 1 through 3. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. So, so he's actually in a place of prominence. Sitting in the gate is not, is not for everybody. If you were sitting in the gate, you were in a place of prominence. That means that, that he's developed a reputation here. It means, and we're going to see this more in a couple of verses, it means that he is in community with these people. Okay, he is climbing that, that ladder of stature in this community to where he's in the gate. You'd have a small city like this. He'd be surrounded by a wall to keep, keep people, keep enemies out. And you typically have at least one gate. Okay, and that gate was really important because that gate is where you determined who would come in and who was going to go out. But most importantly, who were you going to let into your city? Because you had people of great prominence who were there. They're like the security guys at the airport who are making you take off your shoes and hassling you before you get on an airplane. So he's sitting in the city gate in a place of prominence, and he's part of the, he's part of the board of, of guys that determines who it is that is going to move into the city. So he no longer has his tent pitched near Sodom. Okay, He's in the city, and he is of the city. So what does he do when these two angels come up? When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, 
Please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. And they said, no, we'll spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread and they ate. So this sort of parallels the treatment that these two men and the Lord received from Abraham. Right. He extends hospitality. It's a severe downgrade from the hospitality they got at Abraham's house. If you remember that, I mean, Sarah's making cakes, right? She's kneading flour. He's going and killing a tender calf and barbecuing it on the spot. This isn't quite that. But what you'll see the difference is, is Lot's wife is not involved. You want good hospitality, you need a good wife involved. But she's not here. So he, he, he cooks him a meal that boils down to uh, unleavened bread, right? Bread that doesn't rise. Pop-tarts. Gives them pop-tarts. That's what they're eating. Not the greatest thing. But notice, notice this. What, what, what does he say to them? He pressed them strongly. He pressed them strongly so the two, to, to come to his house. So the two men come in. They, they say, he says, hey, come to my house. Extends hospitality. What's their response? No, you're fine. We're good. We got our sleeping bags. We'll just stay right here in the town square. You're not going to want to stay in the town square. So he said, no, really? No, really? It's, it's no big deal. We're fine. We've got everything we need. So what does he do? He presses them strongly. No, seriously. Two angels here in the dark. Not good. You need to come to my house. What does that tell us? Lot knows he lives in a wicked city. He knows he lives in a wicked city. So he watches out for these guys. He says, listen, you need to, you need to come to my house. And here's, here's what happens next. Verses 4 through, take it a couple verses at a time. Uh, dinner's over. Okay, it's dark. And knock at the door. Who's at the door? Verse 4. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot. Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Speaking frankly, this is what is happening. All the men of the town surround Lot's house. Their intent is to have a homosexual orgy in his front yard. Before that commences, they bang on his door because he knows that there's two men who are visiting town who are staying in his house. And they're asking him to let those men out so that they can gang rape them. This is Sodom. This is what is taking place in this city. Now this city, this sinful city, that represents a sinful world. How does God deal with a sinful city? How does God deal with a sinful world? How are we going to see His justice? How are we going to see His mercy? There's a couple things that I'll highlight in the two verses we just read. One is this phrase, all the people to the last man. Did you read that? 
all the people to the last man. Think about this. Who shows up? Who shows up to this orgy? Every single man. Every single man. Here's the question. How many good guys are in this town? There are no good guys in this town. There are no good guys in this town. Remember Abraham's prayer? I'm sure we can find ten good guys. Right? That was his prayer. He worked God down to ten and said, Will you spare the whole city if we can? My nephew's been there for decades now. I'm sure. I'm sure he's been evangelizing. I'm sure they got a church by now. I'm sure there's at least ten good guys that we can find in the town. God says, Sure. Sure, you find ten good guys and I will spare the town. Does it say that every man in the town, save ten, came knocking on Lot's door? It doesn't. Every single man is there. All of them. Okay, it is important for us to remember. Okay, Because God is going to save from among these wicked, evil men. Because that's going to include Lot. Because you're going to see his behavior and it's wicked. Okay, in the world, the world is not a place right where God comes down and searches for all the good guys and saves all the good guys. There are zero good guys. If you think you're one of the good guys, it's because God made you a little gooder. But you're not a good guy. The world is not good guys and bad guys. The world is bad guys and good Jesus. That's the world we live in. And that was the city. The only thing good in the city is God. Amen. And everything else is wicked. And everything else is evil. Because there's no good people for us to hide among. There's no goodness in and of ourselves to claim. If we're to be saved, it's not going to be because of anything good in us. But it gets even darker. It gets even darker if you pay attention and you study the meaning of the phrase both young and old. Both young and old. I looked up this Hebrew word young, and it means adolescent. It's translated elsewhere in the Old Testament as child or boy. So this isn't saying that every man in the city was outside Lot's house. It's saying every male in the city was outside Lot's house. So think for a moment about what that means. That means that this is a father and son night out. This is what these dads are going to take their boys out to do. Going to teach them the ropes. Going to show them what real men do. It means that you have all the males. It means that you have grandfathers and their grandsons outside Lot's house. So it's become so perverse that you have men who are coming out there with their boys and are stripping their boys down and handing them over to their buddies. And they're swapping kids. And they're banging on Lot's house saying, we've got some fresh meat in here. Let them out so they can become a part of our party. This is wicked. This is why we were told in chapter 13, verse 13, that this was a very wicked city. Verse 6. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him and said, I beg you, my brothers, 
do not act so wickedly. So Lot goes outside, he shuts the door, and he's going to try to reason with this angry mob. You see what he calls them? Brothers. Brothers, he calls them. So either these men are dear to him, or he's trying to endear himself to these men right, in hopes that he can win them over and, and, and get them to leave him alone and to, to go away. Either way, this is his community. Okay, These are his brothers. These are his comrades. These are his buddies that he's addressing. Lot, we'll get into this more next week at the end of chapter 19, but Lot never should have moved into this city. Lot seriously needs new friends. He needs new friends. And this is going to cost him, and it's going to cost his family. It's going to cost his wife. It's going to cost his girls. And it goes back to a very stupid decision that he made. Now, many Christians today, many Christian men today, many Christian husbands today, many Christian fathers today, I have seen make decisions that are completely unwise in the name of ministry. I'm sure Lot could have excused him moving close to the city of Sodom, right? Well, sure, it's a wicked city, but there's wicked people everywhere. And we got the gospel and we know God. And so we'll take this city for Jesus. I know there's no good churches there. I know the people seem to be pretty bad, but let's go ahead. Let's trust the Lord. Let go. Let God. There's lots of opportunity. We can move up the ladder. Let's get into this city. And it's going to cost him everything. Everything. When he should have considered his family, he should have considered his wife. He should have considered his kids. He should have looked at this through a spiritual lens and made a decision that would have been honoring and glorifying to God. And he does. It's going to cost him everything. And then he says this to the men. Do not act so wickedly. And they don't like that word. We're going to see that. Who are you to judge us? Lot is basically what they're going to say. You're just a sojourner. You're going to come into our town and, and tell us how, how we should live? Do not act so wickedly. So there's a big debate here. There has been, at least in the last 100 years, more in the last 50 years, a lot more in the last 20 years. What's the big sin here? Does this speak to homosexuality? One commentator says that the great sin of the Sodomites was inhospitality. God's reaction is a severe overreaction. I think we would all agree if they were simply inhospitable. I should have baked more bread. You didn't. <laughs> We'd become the most hospitable people on the planet if that were the case. But there are some things to note. I mean, what's the big deal with what they're doing? They're not breaking any civil laws, are they? No, the lawmakers are there. The cops are there. All the men of the city are there. Isn't this how we come up with laws? We don't consult God's word, though we should. We just decide, we just get a consensus, right? But what do you think? Let's put it to a vote. Is this right? Is this wrong? Should we make a law against this? Should we make a law to preserve this? And that's how we form societies. 
We should be consulting God's law. Amen. Sodom did not consult God's law. So they said, hey, you know what? We want to do this. This is how we want to live. We should have the freedom and the right to do this. And so here they are, breaking no civil laws. Everyone is in agreement. And so it does beg the question, is there something wrong here? Is there something sinful here? Is the big question that's asked by many today, how does God feel about homosexuality? How does God feel about homosexuals? Is God anti-gay? Is God anti-gay people? It begs the question. Let me just read a few scriptures. A few scriptures. We won't make the sermon about this, but just a few scriptures. Leviticus 18.22 You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. What do these men intend to do? To lie with men as you would with a woman. Leviticus 20.13 If a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination they shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. How seriously did God take this in this theocracy? Very seriously. It was a capital offense. A capital offense. We can go New Testament. In the book of Romans, in the first chapter, verse 26 and 27. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Now we need to be careful here. In, in, or I want to be careful here in how I say this. Because Genesis 19, sadly, has become a favorite passage of some conservative, evangelical Christians today who would like to use texts like this to single out particular sins and hammer them while ignoring their own sin. So we've got to be really careful that we don't do that here. Some of you may even come here like, all right, here we go. Give it, give it to them. Fire and brimstone. Hey, all you gays. Let's read how God dealt with you and how God's going to deal with you. We're not, we're not going to preach that. That is not, that is not what we find here. Listen to that phrase at the beginning of Romans chapter 1, verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Okay, and then you read, and then you read what has happened, what's happening today, certainly what happened in Sodom. And now men are acting unnaturally with other men. God has made men and He's made women and He's made them to relate to one another sexually. He's made them to fit together sexually. And that is God's natural way. And everything else is unnatural. That's how Romans talks about it. But how did they get there? It says that God gave them up to dishonorable passions. A lot of you have dishonorable passions. A lot of you have dishonorable passions. A lot of you have, here's another phrase that means the same thing, wicked desires. A lot of you have wicked desires. You have things you want to do that you ought 
not to do. Let me rephrase that. You all have sinful desires. You all have wicked desires. You all have dishonorable passions. And here's the thing. You were born that way. I really don't get that whole argument. You were born that way. I was born that way. We were born sinners. We didn't become, we didn't start off good and then the world poisoned us and other sinners poisoned us and then we became sinful. Those of you who had little kids, you know that. You know that. You saw that as they developed, their sin developed. It's like they were developing motor skills just so they could sin against you. Like, wow, I can talk. I'm going to say awful things to you, mom and dad. They do when they're young, when they, when they can't talk. What does a child do when you take a child and you go to put them in their crib and they arch their back and scream? That is sin. It is sin. You're not going to tell me what to do, buddy. I'm not taking a nap. You can take your nap and shove it. That's what they, that's what these little cute little bundles of depravity would say. Listen, we are sinful. We are born that way. You've got your stuff that you deal with, and I've got my stuff that I deal with. You've got your propensities. I've got my propensities. I've got absolute trash that I will go after. And you have absolute trash that you will go after. What do we have? Dishonorable passions. For some of you, it may be same-sex attraction, like it was for the men in Sodom. For some of you, it may not. I'll tell you what, any sexually speaking, any passion that is dishonorable is, is anything other than a husband with passion for his wife and a wife with passion for her husband. Everything else is a sexually dishonorable passion. But this was their deal. Fire and brimstone is not for homosexuals. Fire and brimstone is for wicked people. Yes, and we are all wicked people. Okay, you read Paul? Paul is not picking on homosexuals. Paul is picking on people. Your Bible is not picking on homosexuals. Your Bible is picking on people. For we all have sinned, Romans 3.23, and fall short of the glory of God. There is no one righteous, Romans 3, verse 10 through 11. No, not even one. A righteous man, no one, no one can find. So I'm not saying, let me clarify, I'm not saying that all sin is the same. But I am saying that all sin, and the Bible is saying that all sin is offensive to God. All sin is offensive to God. All sin is wickedness. And all sin... All sin, when it comes to alienating you from God, gets the job done. All sin. Every sin. The white lie, it does the job. It gets you alienated from God. Living a homosexual lifestyle, it does the job. It gets you alienated from God. It is offensive to God. So this is why at Veritas we pick on everybody. We are equal opportunists. Now as well, look at verse 8. Because it, it gets worse. Look at verse 8. Now remember in this passage, who's our guy? Lot's our guy. 
He's the one that gets rescued like you've been rescued, Christians. So here we are. We get ready to point the finger to all those outside. Well, let's look at our inside guy. How does he behave? How does he act? Is it reprehensible? Verse 8. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Listen to what he says next. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. What about your daughters, Lot? He says, don't hurt these men because they've come under the shelter of my roof. What does that mean? He's saying, because they're under my protection. I'm responsible for them. What about your daughters, Lot? If any of you are dads with little girls, you can't even imagine this. Can't fathom this. I became so sick over and over again studying for today's sermon this week. I mean, physically just feeling ill. God finally blessed our family with a a little girl. Right? It was boy, 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 boy. Each time we're thinking, got to be a girl, another boy, got to be a girl, another boy, four boys, four boys. We adopt a girl. Now here she is. And I, I read this and I just, I mean, this little girl, no one's getting close to her ever, <laughs> ever. I mean, four big brothers armed to the teeth, you know, a father. I mean, there's going to be five interrogations at least. We've got to discover a threshold of pain. I mean, it's not going to go well. And here, here is Lot serving up his girls. He's become so... You know, one commentator said, it is not Lot that has gotten into the city. It's the city that has gotten into Lot. His thinking is completely warped to where he would see this as a good thing to protect these men who are in his home. And he actually considers handing over his daughters. It's It's shocking. It's cowardly. Totally inexcusable. Verse 9, their reaction. But they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn and he has become the judge. Now we will deal with you worse than with them. And then they pressed hard against the man Lot and he drew near to break and they drew near to break the door down. You're going to see this again in a minute. No one takes Lot serious. No one listens to him. Everyone thinks he's a joke. Verse 10. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the doors. This is the two angels now. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. No thanks to Lot here, but thanks to God. Thanks to God. God works here. Verse 12, Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here? Sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city, bring them out of the place. For we are about to destroy this place 
because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. Okay, so here it comes. Here's here's a message of mercy being held out to Lot. Here's God's plan. This is a wicked city and God's going to wipe it all out. But He wants to rescue you, so come with us. In fact, gather up your family, sons, sons-in-law, whoever you got. Gather them up. They can come with you. Very merciful here. But we need to get out of the city. And we need to get out of the city when? Right now we need to get out of the city. Right now we need to get out of this city. They tell him that God's plan, God's intention is to destroy Everything. God is saying this city has become so wicked and so evil. It's like the flood in the days of Noah. It's Genesis 6, 5. Every intention of the hearts of all the men were only evil all the time. That's what has happened in this city. And so God is saying, I'm going to wipe it out. I'm going to completely destroy everything. I'm not going to leave a single soul survival, survivor. This is the kind of place... It's like a house that needs to be fumigated. Everything needs to be killed. Everyone needs to be wiped out. If you leave just one and come back in a hundred years, you're going to have another Sodom on your hands. So God's plan, God's intention is He is going to wipe out the entire city. So their message is pack up. Pack up right now. We need to get out of here. Verse 14. What does Lot do? So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters. So Lot has arranged to give his girls to men who live where? In the city of Sodom. What do we know about the men in the city of Sodom? Lot is foolish. He said to them, get up. Get out of this place. For the Lord is about to destroy the city. Listen. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. Right. Right. Fire from the sky. Okay. Go back to sleep. Go back to sleep. We're fine. This is the natural state of men. We don't take sin serious. We don't take hell serious. We don't take judgment seriously. It's just a story. It's just a fable. It's just a myth. So here Lot comes, pronouncing truth. The truth of what is going to happen to this city. And he is completely disregarded. Verse 15. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So look at those first three words in verse 15. As morning dawned. When did this all start? The night before. What did the angels say the night before? Get out of here. Run. It's morning. What is, what is Lot still doing in the city? Why is he here? And then even in the morning, the angels come again. They're like, Lot, we're not joking. Get 
out of the city. And what does he do? He lingers. Oh, softly sudden. I really, I'm not sure I like your tone right now. It's just these angry words. I need, I need happy words. Okay, just relax. Okay, so let me get my things in order. A place for everything, everything in its place. Let me pack up. All right, I'm just not so sure about this. This is how we treat sin. This is what this is here for. What does God say? Run. What are you doing? Get out of here. Flee. Do you not understand my justice? Do you not understand my wrath? Do you not understand your sin? What is the problem here? What truth do you need? Well, one of the big ones we need is understanding the sinfulness of sin. Sin, this is revolutionary in our day. Sin is sinful. The word has just become so normal to us. It does not mean a mistake. It's not a whoops. Sin is sinful. It's exceeding wicked. It's infinitely offensive to God. And the thing is, is if we don't, some of us like fire and brimstone and judgment and hell and sin, and this is just terrible. Why do we have to talk about these things? I go to church to feel good, not bad. Why? Why? It's so depressing. So discouraging. Listen, here's the deal. If you don't, if you don't understand sin, you won't understand the cross. Amen. If you don't get sin, you won't get the cross. If you don't understand how sinful sin is, how wicked sin is, how deserving of divine judgment sin is, you will not be thankful to Jesus. You will not turn to Jesus. If we do not understand the sinfulness of sin, we'll be the last people on earth to beat our chest and say, have mercy on me, a sinner. We must understand the sinfulness of sin. That's why Thomas Boston, the Puritan, said, learn the evil of sin. No one promotes that anymore. You know, you need to learn the evil of sin. Whoa. Whoa. How about grace alone? How about the fellowship of the saints? How about mercy? Well, yeah, those two. But you need to learn the evil of sin. John Stott said to make light of sin is inevitably to make light of salvation and so of the cross. How interested are we in understanding the sinfulness of our sin? Not very. How seriously do we take our sin today by large? Not very. Just go to the Christian bookstore and look at the books. How many books are how many top selling Christian books are teaching you about your sin and helping you to abhor your sin? Now, get a time machine and go back 400 years ago and you have books like by Ralph Benning called The Sinfulness of Sin. Oh, that jump off the shelf today. Oh, yes. Or The Anatomy of Secret Sin. Another book. Who would read that? Like it's a secret. Leave it there. I don't want to know what it is. Let alone the anatomy of it. 
books written by Puritans called like the evil of evils or the exceeding sinfulness of sin. What jumps off the shelf today? Your best life now. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Every day is a Friday. Yeah. I like that. It's got a ring to it. I mean, the books might as well be called You Are Amazing. <laughs> You're amazing. I love that book. I love that author. I want to buy everything he writes. I want to start memorizing him. That's so good. And it's just deluding us, isn't it? Amen. It's not truth. Charles Spurgeon said, Sin is a defiance. Just listen to these quotes and think to yourself, because we're, we're the product of our culture, right? We don't think the way that we need to think about sin. But do you feel this way about sin? A few quotes. Sin is a defiance of God to his face. A stabbing of God so far as man can do it to the very heart. Sin is a monster. A hideous thing. A thing which God will not look upon and which pure eyes cannot behold but with the utmost detestation. A flood of tears is the proper medium through which a Christian should look at sin. Ralph Venning, who wrote the book, The Sinfulness of Sin. You just get a few chapters into the book and he's already used these words to describe sin. Vile, ugly, odious, malignant, pestilent, hideous, spiteful, poisonous, virulent, villainous, abominable, and deadly. Do our sins feel like this? to us or is our attitude what is the big deal what is the big deal someday I'll get to this sometime I'll get to this oh the deathbed conversion that's what I'm going to do live it up enjoy then someday I'll think I'll think about my spiritual life some of us have different categories for sin we've got sin and then there's respectable sin where we've got sin and then there's the really bad sins against God. This is what our Bible teaches. Every sin is a sin against God. Every sin. We're going to read about Abraham in chapter 20 of Genesis and he hands his wife over to Abimelech and Abimelech does not end up sleeping with her. And then God goes to Abimelech and says, I kept you from sinning. And then what does God say? Against me. You're going, what did God have to do with it? I mean, if he slept with her, he would have sinned against Sarah and against Abraham. But why God? Or in Psalm 51, 4, I mean, here, David, he's finally convicted. He's he's killed Uriah, the, the husband of the woman he's committed adultery with. He conviction finally settles in. And then he cries out in Psalm 51, 4 against you and you only, God, have I sinned. You sin against somebody, you're sinning against someone God made. Yeah. You're sinning against an image bearer of God. And it's always sin against God as well, because when you sin, you need to understand God made you. God made you. He made you. Why? To be an image bearer of him. To reflect him as well. God is Lord over your life. He made you. He created you. He owns you. And he tells you how to live your life. And when you live your life in a different way, when you sin, when you go your own way. You're calling God a liar. God has said, I am good. I am good. And you ought to live this way so that it will go well for you. And we say, you know, I'm going to go this way. What are we doing when we do that? We're defying God to his face. We're calling God a liar. God is merciful and gracious. Here he gives us these great gifts. He gave you breath to breathe. He gave you water to drink. He gave you food to eat. 
Right here we are. He's been so gracious to us and yet we sin against him and disobey him and disregard him and dishonor him. But God has been so good to us. It's why John Bunyan said that sin is the dare of God's justice, the rape of his mercy, the jeer of his patience, the contempt of his love. And John Piper summarized the infinite, all glorious creator of the universe by whom and for whom all things exist, who holds every person's life in being at every moment is disregarded, disbelieved, disobeyed and dishonored by everybody in the world. That is the ultimate outrage of the universe. That's it. But where we really learn how sinful sin is, is when we say, God, how are you going to deal with it? Because that's going to teach us how sinful it is. That's going to teach us how bad it is. By God, the one who knows all, the one and only one who is good and just and right, how is he going to deal with sin? We see in just a couple more verses. So the men, verse 16, so the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being, what's the word? Merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. Okay? He is saved by force. Okay? He does not respond to the altar call. You get that? He does... Lot did not respond to the altar call. The angels all night have been saying, Come, you who are weary and burdened, and he'll give you rest. Come, you who are thirsty, and he'll give you drink to eat. Come, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Receive him, believe him, follow him, serve him. Two angels have been preaching to him all night. Morning is now dawned, and he's still lingering. Right? So if this fool is getting saved, how is it going to happen? He needs to be seized, seized by God and drug, kicking and screaming out of the city. That's what God does. So the angels have to, I mean, finally, finally, he's drug out of the city. Now, here's the debate, and it's an opportunity to speak to it. Well, what about free will? I wasn't expecting you to laugh, but I just hold on. Because what about free will? Because this is also a big debate, isn't it? But we need to understand this because God overrides Lot's free will here. As we all do with people we love. Now, you have free will. I have free will. Lot had free will. And no one's a robot. God's not a puppet master and we're puppets and he's pulling strings we're not robots you've heard all the arguments right there is another alternative god is not coercing us forcing us absolutely not every human being is totally has total free will in the sense that we all do exactly what we want to do whenever we want to do it we all do what we want to do but here's the deal We are sinners. So friends, guess what we want to do? Okay, it's not say yes to Jesus. It's not go forward at the altar call. It's not 
flee from the wrath to come. So what does God do? He overrides it. He overrides it. I love you. I'm not going to let you get away from me. So he seizes us. And he draws us out of the city. No one can come to me, Jesus says, unless the Father draws him. And the word literally means grab hold of him, seize him, and pull him out. This is what God does for us. Lot was not making good choices. Right? There are no good choices that we read about from Lot. But God loves him. God has set his affection on him. And so he saves him. If you're a parent, you do this with your kids. I override my kids' free will all the time. All the time. You're free, son. You can do whatever you want, unless I don't want you to do it. And then you won't. Oh, dad, I want to go. I want to go play in the street. Oh, well, I wouldn't want to infringe on your free will. What the? Of course not. Of course not. We don't let our kids do whatever they want. Why? Because we love them. The other day, Kristen told me she was funny. She left the room for 45 seconds. That was her number. She said, I left the room for 45 seconds and I came back. And our son, Blaze, is sitting on the couch watching TV, eating a stick of butter like a banana. (laughs) And Avery's next to him just dumping lemonade on the couch. (laughs) Just peeling back the paper. Like, this is pretty good. (laughs) You, You cannot do that. Like, that is not your afternoon snack. You will die when you're 15 of a heart attack. If you eat a stick of butter every day. Well, I want to eat the stick of butter. Well, okay. Okay, what do I do if my boy's running out into the street? Right? He's short. So he doesn't see the truck. But I see what he cannot see. So what do I do? I seize him. I grab him. And what is he doing as I grab him? He's kneeing me. And kicking me. I want to go across the street. I know you want to go across the street, but I love you. And I'm not going to let you go into the street anymore. Okay, and then after a while, what does he see? Oh, I see what you saved me from. This is what God does for his people. This is what God does for his children. Thank goodness God does not just hand us over to our dishonorable passions. Praise God He hasn't done that. Praise God that He has not handed us over, but He has handled us and brought us to Himself. And as they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. Right? Same sermon. Over and over again. Get out of here. This guy, read verse 18. What does Lot say? And Lot said to them, Oh no, my lords. Not thank you. Oh no, my lords. Behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you've shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. 
Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be spared. He said to them, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing until you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar. He's he's making requests. And what does he say? He's a city boy. He's a city boy. Don't make don't make me go camping. Don't send me to the hills. Right? He is the first metrosexual. He's a city boy. He's an urban boy. Probably has liberal political views. Doesn't want to get dirty. Has a sense of fashion. That's Lot. There's no malls in the mountains. Please don't send me there. How about this city? It's a little city. It's a little sin. Not big sin. Little sin. Can I go there? What is more shocking? I don't know. That he actually requests that or that God grants it. God is just ridiculously gracious. I mean, we do. I, I know. I've looked back on some of the things I've prayed for. Like, I can't believe I prayed for that. I can't believe God answered it. He's gracious. He loves us. We sung about it. You, know, you, you have the desires of your heart granted. Why? Because God ordaineth. He ordaineth that you'd have these desires of your heart. Even for Lot, in the middle of his sinfulness, God is gracious to him. Now the most sober part of the entire passage. Verses 23 through 25. Here the question is answered. How bad is sin? How bad is it? Not their sin. Because this is a picture of what will happen on the last day toward all sinners. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zor. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. Who sends the fire? The Lord. Same Lord at the end of chapter 18 that Abraham was pleading with. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and on all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. And to think some of us thought Jesus was a pacifist. Thought Jesus was I thought Jesus was all love. Well, There is no one more loving than Jesus. But be sure of this. If you love something, you hate something. You cannot love apart from hate. Jonathan Edwards said, From love arises hatred of those things which are contrary to what we love or which oppose and thwart us in those things that we delight in. Jesus here sends fire and brimstone because He loves God. And He loves what is good. And He loves justice. And He loves what is right. Still hard to swallow, isn't it? Whole city wiped out. 
We have slogans, don't we, to help us deal with it. God loves the sinner, but hates the sin. Well, God didn't send fire down on sin. He sent fire down on sinners. And my understanding of the Bible is not that there are sins eternally tormented in hell, but there are sinners eternally tormented in hell. I'm not sure where we get off separating sin from the sinner. Some problem out there that God deals with. God loves sinners. That is a true statement. It takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, for God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. And a hundred other verses we could read. God loves the world. God loves the world. That's why the, the beautiful weather is outside right now and not everybody that's going to feel it loves Jesus. God loves them. God also hates sinners. God hates sinners. God loves sinners and God hates sinners at the same time. We've heard all the God loves sinners verses. We know those. But what about Psalm 5, 4 and 5? For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. It's really hard to make that say something else. Well, what the psalmist really meant was you don't hate all evildoers. had a funny way of saying it. Psalm 11.5, The Lord tests the righteous, but His soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. God looks at wicked, hateful sinners and He loves them and He hates them. This is true. God loves sinners And so we see common grace poured out on all. Good news going to all. God loves all sinners. God hates all sinners who curse God and turn their back on God and go their own way and disbelieve God and don't trust Him and don't honor Him and don't obey Him and make a mess of this world and make a mess of their lives. God is not mocked. It is not a joke. He doesn't sweep it under the carpet. He loathes sin and He loathes those who are committing the sin. He does not not punish those whom His affection is on. And He does not love those who are pouring out wrath on others. When the Bible speaks of God's hatred, when the Bible speaks of God's love, it is complex. It is not simple. God loves the sinner. God hates the sinner. And then, God really loves some sinners. Those He seizes, right? not just going to give you a run in this lifetime. going to bless you for eternity. And takes us into His family. Not a family we were born into. That's why it says we're adopted. Adopted into God's family to become His 
sons and daughters. Some of us, even when we hear that, we just think, do we have to say that? It just seems like we're rubbing people's nose in it. I mean, God, God loves the sinner but hates the sin. It's true, so can we just stick with that? Are we just trying to be offensive? God loves the sinner and he hates the sinner. I, I think it's actually helpful. I think it's important. Friends, if you are here today and you are in sin and you have not turned to Christ and you have not believed the Gospel and you have not placed your faith in Him, I would not want you to think that God's love for you means that He's going to overlook that. Because there is hatred as well. God's not okay with this. And God will deal with it. And then verse 26. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. And when she looks back, it means she's, she's fond of the city. She's already missing Sodom. She's looking back with a, affection. Right, you ever leave a, you leave, leave a place or leave a home filled with people you love? What do you do as you're driving down the street or driving out the driveway? If you're like me, you turn and you look. Right, you look back. You want to see them one more time. My boys are always outside running around. And so I'm driving down the driveway and I'm looking back because I have affection for them. I just I want to see them. Do you do that? When you leave a place you have no affection for. It's tunnel vision, right? I'm not looking back. I don't even want to think about it. I don't even remember it. Just dead ahead. Set my course. What does she do? She looks back. How are God's people dealing with their sin in this story? I mean, they're, 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 they're not responding to the call to get up and get out of there. They're delaying. Okay, They're laughing. And here we see Lot's wife is looking back. This is why Jesus uses this story in Luke 17 to press home the point. Listen, run, run from your sin, flee from your sin, flee from Sodom. And we need to hear this today and we need to take sin seriously enough to do this. Some of you need to turn to Jesus for the first time. You need to turn from your sin. Some of you need to turn from your sin again. You're a Christian and you're just enough is enough. You've got to stop and turn from your sin. Stop looking at it with affection. Flee from Sodom. This is not something you need to pray about or think about or consider. Flee from Sodom. That's what that's what Lot was doing. Consider let me consider this. No. Now you wouldn't if you believed what Lot needed to believe, but we simply don't, and that's that there is destruction coming. 
And the destruction will be sudden, it will be dreadful, it will be universal, and it will be everlasting. Now, friends, if you believe that, you'd run. If you believe that, you'd run. Because the destruction is going to come, what does Luke 17 say? It's going to come suddenly. So repentance isn't something you get to. I'm really busy right now. No, you're not. You're not that busy. There's not going to be any heads up. It's not going to be a two-minute warning. Okay, the destruction is going to come suddenly. What were the people of Sodom doing when the fire began to rain down on their heads? They were eating, they were drinking, they were being merry. And the destruction came suddenly. All of you are going to meet Jesus. You're going to meet Him in one of two ways. Either He's going to come or you're going to go. And you may leave this room tonight. We may never see you again. Or He may come back. But it's going to happen suddenly. Be sure of that. Do you believe that? Do you believe that it's going to be dreadful? Do you believe His judgment is dreadful? We need to read stories like Genesis 19. It's going to be dreadful, friends. Just dreadful. It's going to be universal. No one's getting out of this thing alive. No one was left in this city. And it's everlasting. Everlasting. It's eternal damnation. The city of Sodom today is probably underneath the Dead Sea. No one living there. Nothing growing there. Dead. Forever. Because it was subjected to God's judgment. So here's the question. Do we believe that? Now again, we know the Christian answer. Yes, of course. I don't listen to Rob Bell. I believe it. It's true. I affirm it. Okay, well, do you believe it because you, you believe that this is God's Word and so there you have it? Do you believe it because um, people who you love and trust have told you that it's true? Or have you yet, by the Holy Spirit, received convincing light that has compelled you to live differently because this is true and you know it in your bone of bones? Because this is Truth. And then finally, a somber and quiet moment here as Abraham looks out over the destruction. Doesn't know what he's going to find, but he gets up early in the morning and he goes out and has some quiet time looking down on these cities and doesn't ask God a single question. He knows God did what was right and just. Abraham went out early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord and he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley and he looked and behold, the smoke of the land went up like smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. There's a reason to pray. Why did God just tell us he saved Lot? Because Abraham prayed for him. Abraham's prayer moved the hand of God. And the Lord remembered Abraham and saved Lot. Let me close with the wrong question at this point to ask and the right question to ask. 
the wrong question is how could a loving God send fire on this city? There are so many sinful presuppositions to that question, it's not even funny. And it doesn't understand truth, and it doesn't even understand reality. The wrong question is how could a loving God send fire on this city? Here would be a good question. How could a good and just God not send fire on this city? How could a good and just God not send fire on this city? And I think maybe an even better question. How could God seize and rescue this guy? I mean, go ahead and look. Take a good, long, hard look at Lot. And see if you can find any merit in him. I think he may have been worse than the men in Sodom. Offering up his daughters to them. And yet what? God rescued him. So what does Abraham do? As he looks down, he sees, he sees God's story from everlasting to everlasting. I mean, this is what God is doing. Why has God created the entire universe? So that He would be glorified. How is He most glorified? In displaying His character to us. How does He display His character? Both His justice and His mercy. What is displayed before Abraham as he looks down at the cities and the smoke rises, God's justice is displayed. And then he sees this guy running for a little city. Angels dragging him. (laughs) What does he see? God's mercy. Why, you rescued one. The good God, always good, a gracious God, and a merciful God. Would you not turn to him? And turn from your folly. Friends, do not linger. Do not linger. Some of you have thought about this long enough. You need to turn to Christ and beg for His mercy. Some of you Christians are entertaining sins you should not entertain. And you've been dealing with certain sins far too long. And it's because you're not taking it seriously enough. And you need to run and you need to flee, and you need to not linger. Let's pray. So, Father, thank You for the testimony of Your justice and Your mercy that we've read here in the book of Genesis. God, in many ways, we look around us and it looks that we live in a city very similar to Sodom. God, and there are very few who pay You any mind who pay you any heart, who pay you any will. God, we're concerned. We know that you would be just and and you would be right to consume us. So God, we do continue to come before you and, and beg you to be merciful. But God, we do not presume to beg for your mercy uh, without desiring to please you and become holy 
and better pictures of you in this world. So, God, please do your sanctifying work in us. Sanctify us. Make us like you. Lord, I pray that if I have, uh, if there's brothers or sisters here, even in my own heart, God, if there's a, a wicked way in me that needs to be revealed, pray that you would do this. For my friends and my brothers and sisters, God, if there is something that they are holding on to, an idol that they continue to polish, uh, a God that they continue to bow down to, uh, a sin that they continue to yield to, Lord, I pray that you would cut the lifelines of that sin off. You would mortify it and you would destroy it and bring another testimony of your grace. So we love you in this time and always. We pray these things in the perfect name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to this free audio podcast by Veritas Church. For more audio and video, please visit veritas-truth.com.